Are you an avid Queens of the Minds listener? I have an announcement for you. You are invited to join me and an intimate audience for a live recording session of Queens of the Minds podcast, Saturday, December 14th, at 4.30 p.m. to 6 p.m. We will be doing the live taping during the next second Saturday art night in downtown Sonora. The event will be held in a secret location, which is a really awesome room in a historic Gold Rush era building. After we wrap, you can enjoy the merchants of historic downtown Sonora who will have opened their doors until 8 p.m. hosting live music and will have art on display. Or we as a group can go see what's happening at Cervantes so I can get a red beer. I will be telling a great story about a 19th century showgirl that will be posted in a future episode. And you could probably guess how excited I am to share that particular story. Space is limited, and tickets are only $10. You will receive a special edition Queens of the Minds decal for attending and a pack of Golden California poppy seeds. You can purchase tickets through Eventbrite or on our Facebook page or by Venmo to southernmindqueen at gmail.com. Please make sure you post ticket in the notes. I hope to see you there. Let's make this a really fun event. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Columbia Mercantile 1855. Columbia Mercantile 1855 is a reimagined Gold Rush era general store in Columbia State Historic Park. As a young child, the owner Teresa, who reopened the store late spring this year, was transplanted to the historic township of Columbia and spent her days playing in the tree-lined streets and singing with the banjo-playing barber. She also spent many hours painting for gold with the old-timers, listening to the old stories of Columbia and the motherlode. Teresa is serving both local residents and state park visitors, living history, and offering high-quality grocery staples from local suppliers. You'll find there Strauss Family Creamery, Bob's Red Mill, Alvarado Street Bakery, Diesel Family Ranch, MJ Farms, Inner Sanctum Cellars, Indigene, Culver's Goods, Gold Country Honey Farms, Jamestown Olive Oils, Twisted Honey, and Fresh Baked Raymond South San Francisco Sourdough Bread Daily. They also have gluten-free, vegan, and dairy-free options. Additional specialty items include old-fashioned hard stick candies, my favorite macaroons by Calculated Whisks, fresh baked cookies and pies, and the famous Columbia Soda Works Sarsaparilla. It feels like an authentic mid-19th century mercantile. There's a little bit of hardware, garden, housewares, gifts, antiques, and original fine art in the Argonaut Art Gallery. The Columbia Mercantile 1855 is a great place to discover a treasure trove of gold standard products for your modern life. The holidays are here and it is so important to shop local. Columbia Mercantile 1855 is located near the St. Charles Saloon and the Firehouse in the most interesting building in Columbia State Historic Park. You know it, the red brick building with its iconic green iron doors. Open daily from 9 to 6 and they remain open during PG&E outages. At 11245 Jackson Street in historic Columbia State Park. And that was the old French Quarter of the Township of Columbia back in the day.
Last time on Queens of the Mines. A still drunk Frederick Cannon, Jock, stumbled up to the home of Josefa and Jose later that morning. He stood in front of the home and yelled to the exposed doorway for Josefa to come out. Instead, Jose came out of the house, and he was pissed. Jose immediately demanded payment. An argument ensued, and other still-drunk patriotic miners gathered to see what looked as though was going to become a brawl. Yosefa stormed out of the house and positioned herself between the two men. She and Cannon then continued the argument in Spanish. Most of the crowd that had gathered could not understand their heated exchange, in which he continued to berate her and then called her the Spanish word for horror. Yosefa stood under the tall man looking up at him, yet down at him at the same time. She dared Cannon to come into her home and say those words again, and Jock followed her into the house. Moments later, the quiet, waiting crowd saw Frederick Cannon, Jock, stagger out of the open doorway, clutching his bleeding chest. Queens of the Mines features the authentic stories of gold rush women who blossomed from the camouflage, twisted roots of California. These are true stories with some of my own fabrication of descriptive details. It is recommended that you start the series from the first episode. On this episode of Queens of the Mines, we will complete the story of the Queen of Revenge. This is a true story from America's largest migration, the Gold Rush. The preceding program features stories that contain adult content, including violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners or secondhand listeners. So, discretion is advised. Major William Downey was staying at the Lovejoy Hotel in Buffalo, New York, when he first heard of the discovery of gold in California. His mind quickly filled with the same wonder and imagination he had as a child. He was transported back in time, one of eight children watching the waves rolling in through the North Channel in Scotland, thinking of all the adventure to be had. Wasting no time, he boarded a ship, and by the time it arrived in San Francisco on June 27, 1849, the entire crew abandoned their work and ran with the passengers for the foothills. Major Downey had formed a company of men that he led on his excursion. It included 10 African-American sailors from the ship and an older Irish man. Along the way, they met a young native man and befriended him for his knowledge of the land and skill in unknown terrain. The Scotsman decided to head to the northern mines, stopping with his men on the upper north fork of the Yuba River. Philo Havens was the first and only white man in the area, which was known as the Forks. 
and he had just discovered gold in waters so rich, a shovel was not even needed. The hillsides were covered with oaks, bending their crooked branches in fantastic forms, while here and there a mighty pine towered above them, and tall willows waved their slender branches. That December, Downey and company moved into the rustic log cabin they had built high above the river at the Forks. The erection of this structure gave Downey cause to claim to be the founder of what he called Downeyville. As the men settled in for the cold, they discovered they had a single bottle of brandy left. The men argued for what was almost a week over whether to drink it on Christmas or New Year's Eve. The anxious men eventually agreed on the sooner holiday. On Christmas, the brandy was mixed with hot water and nutmeg into a punch. The men were finally drunk off brandy and the anticipated moment. It wasn't long before Downey climbed onto the cabin roof with a flag and a pistol. I made a short speech waved the flag and fired a few shots and finished up by giving three cheers for the American Constitution. Merry Christmas! Chapter 2, Part 2 It was the summer of 1851, and it was especially hot in Downeyville, California. The morning after the state's first Independence Day, some miners were still in celebration mode. Men were roaming the streets, finding shade under the towering oak trees. Others found much-needed relief, splashing around in waters of the refreshing rivers from the high Sierra Nevada mountains. The atmosphere quickly changed when the word spread through town like wildfire. It was said that with a long bowie knife, Yosefa Seovia from Jack Craycroft's bar stabbed Frederick Jock Cannon in the heart, clear through his sternum bone. And as she was screaming in Spanish that she is not a whore, he bled out on the ground. The cry of murder rang throughout Downeyville, and Yosefa's fate was soon to be determined by the hostility of this proud, mostly Anglo community. After the stabbing, Yosefa and Jose rushed into their home and out the back door. They ran along the footpath towards Jack Craycroft's gambling palace, never looking back. Her heart was pounding furiously in her chest. Her face was hot, and the sound of Jock's cracking sternum was playing on repeat in her head. They burst through the door of the saloon in a panic. There were a few local Mexican men gambling inside. They were friends of theirs and were startled by her distress. The men quickly agreed to try to protect her and hid the couple downstairs. Yosefa sat with her legs crossed, folded over her arms, cradling her belly, and took refuge in Jose's embrace, unsure of what was to come. An angry mob was forming outside of Jack Craycroft's place. The bloodthirsty miners were banging on the locked doors, shouting threats. 
They will tear down the saloon if the men continue to withhold the murderous woman. Yosefa's friends defended her for as long as they could until the door was beaten down. A group of men entered, pulling the gamblers outside for a beating, while the rest began searching the establishment. Yosefa, who was hiding behind a barrel, was found and captured. A tall Scottish man dragged the screaming Mexican woman into the street. The mob tightened around her. They cursed her, spit at her, and threw blows at her and Jose as they were taken into custody and placed in an empty building to await a minor's trial. The growing mom, who had all celebrated in joy together the night before, was now screaming and seething with revenge. Yosefa watched from the cracks in the wall as the crowd swelled to 600 people. And if that wasn't intimidating enough, it then grew to 2,000 angry white men. The town of Downeyville was isolated, far from the center of the law, and order and protection. And the law was taken into their own hands. Consumed in a patriotic hangover, the angry town was full of racial tension. Everyone agreed the act was tragic, shameful, and Yosefa had gone too far. A trial was set within an hour, and before long, the numbers grew to 3,000. The platform that had been erected for the 4th of July celebration was used as the court facility where Jock's cold body was displayed on exhibit his shirt cut open to reveal his bloody, fatal chest wound. Are you enjoying the podcast? Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It is so important. If you would like to contribute and get rewarded for it, check out the Patreon program on patreon.com slash queensofthemines or find us on Instagram to donate or purchase merchandise. You know, listeners, you can always show support of the podcast by supporting our sponsors. This episode is also brought to you by the Chop Shop of Jamestown. The Chop Shop of Jamestown is a female-owned and operated haircutting lounge for men, women, and children. It is located in another one of our local historic areas, Jamestown. I am incredibly proud to have them as a Queens of the Mines sponsor. Shiloh, the owner and operator of the shop, is a sweetheart. She has been a supporter from the very beginning. Thank you, Queen. Online boasts high reviews of the Chop Shop's location, talent, and friendly laid-back atmosphere. One review states Jacqueline will turn your hair into a piece of art. I can attest to that because I follow her on Instagram. And her colors 
are incredible. And I can see through her posts, she goes above and beyond for her clientele, which from what I can see, is super loyal. I'm scheduling an appointment with her ASAP, and I will be sure to post a picture of my updated do on the Queens of the Minds Instagram. They also carry 12 Co. products at the Chop Shop of Jamestown. So, if you're looking for that hat that Snoop Dogg posted a selfie in when he played in Tuolumne, they have them. Make sure to call ahead when requesting a color appointment, but walk-ins for cuts are always welcome. The Chop Shop of Jamestown is located at 18285 California Highway 108, kind of across from the Rawhide Saloon and Woods Creek Cafe. And you can call them at 782-5109. Thank you, the Chop Shop of Jamestown, for being such a wonderful supporter. Okay, back to the story. An attorney who wholeheartedly believed in Yosefa's defense and took his role seriously worked quickly to save her. Despite the pushback from the townspeople, the crowd silenced as Jock Cannon's friends were brought to the platform to give their testimony. One by one, they explained their version of the breaking down of the door and the confrontation that ended in Jock's death. Organ told the crowd, with his hat on his chest, they only innocently knocked on the door, and it had just fallen down, with the lightest tap. Yosefa was in a rage of disbelief. To think she once admired this man. He went on to tell the engaged mob, when it fell, they had just set the door back up and left. Jock had returned in the morning and his only intention was to apologize to Yosefa for his earlier behavior and to fix the door. The silence turned to a murmur, and then grew louder as Jose approached the stand. Jose stated that he heard Cannon call Yosefa a whore, and Cannon continued his verbal abuse, following her into their home. Yosefa walked to the platform. It was hard to hear her broken English over the mob's shouting. Unheard, she told how she had become afraid of Jock Cannon, admitting to even sleeping with a knife under her pillow. She told of previous interactions she had with Jock, rebuffing his sexual advances from time and time again in the past. She explained how she had received a warning from some of the Mexican boys in town who had overheard him discussing breaking into her house to rape the beautiful young woman. Sehovia admitted to killing Cannon with the knife, yet insisted she acted in self-defense. Yosefa was not heard, and anyone else who wanted to speak on behalf of her was quickly thrown off the platform or simply not allowed up to begin with. A jury of white men from Downeyville, California, wasted no time in finding Yosefa guilty of murder and sentenced her to be hung then and there. In 
In one last attempt, her lawyer brought Dr. Cyrus D. Aiken to examine Sehovia in the miner's cabin that she was being held in. The doctor testified that Yosefa was indeed three months pregnant. On the platform, he demanded that her innocent child should not suffer for the sins of its mother, and that a pregnancy, or even the possibility of one, should delay any trial resulting in an execution. The angry mob demanded Yosefa to be examined by another doctor in town, and this time in plain view of the mob. A known dishonest doctor disagreed with the diagnosis Dr. Aiken had given her. He insisted Yosefa was not pregnant. Dr. Aiken was given just two hours to get out of town. He obeyed and vanished, never to be seen in Downeyville again. Yosefa's lawyer, who was refusing to lose, stood on a barrel reciting a passionate speech and begging for a second chance for Yosefa and her unborn child. The barrel he stood on was furiously kicked out from underneath him by the seething miners and as he scrambled to find his eyeglasses and his hat, he was lifted up by the men and hauled off hundreds of yards away where he received a severe beating and was told to stay back. Next, Jose was freed and forcefully escorted quickly out of town. In the last two hours of her life, Yosefa was taken home to pick out an outfit to die in and then rushed back to wait in the hot, empty building. As she dressed for her hanging, she watched, through the slit in the wall, a group of men building a scaffold over the Yuba River off of the Jersey Bridge that crossed it. It was a double A-frame construction with a cribbed pier made of gathered logs and filled with boulders right in the middle of the river. When the time came, the Daily Alta California reported that she did not exhibit the least fear and the Dogtown Territorial Quarterly proclaimed that the woman bravely faced her fate. Yosefa stood tall, wearing the red, finest hoop skirt she possessed, climbing the steps of her gallows as if walking a parade. She shoved her Panama hat into Oregon's chest without making eye contact. The sheriff asked Yosefa if she had anything to say for herself. She shot back, nothing but I would do the same thing again if so provoked. The crowd was momentarily shocked silent. Yosefa went on, be sure my remains are decently taken care of. As she said this, she raised her long, loose tresses carefully in order to fix the rope firmly in its place. She was adjusting the noose to her own neck. The silent crowd stood, jaws dropped as she bravely handled the rope herself. And before the pistol could even be fired to signal the men to cut the lashings, with a smile and a wave of her hand to the bloodthirsty crowd, Yosefa shouted, Adios, senores, 
and step calmly from the plank into eternity. The lynching then ended with her lifeless body enduring a severe beating by several men. Her body tossed from one another to take their turn. This is how Josefa Sehovia died after hanging from the bridge at Downeyville on July 5, 1851, one of only 25 women out of a population of 5,000. She was the first, last, only woman to be lynched in California. Word spread across California and the lynching was immediately condemned. Nine days later, the Alta California called it a blot upon the history of the state. San Francisco newspapers reported it was outrageous that a community would kill a woman where women were so scarce. Yosefa's Mexican heritage denied her the protection guaranteed to the white women in the rough mining communities of the day. Morally, emotionally, and physically. Proven by this lynching, in the eyes of most of Downeyville's inhabitants, she was an inferior being who was tolerated only so long as she did not threaten the Anglo community. The murder was a direct challenge to this dominant group. One newspaper wrote, it was not her guilt which condemned this unfortunate woman, but her Mexican blood. The dirt at the Downeyville Cemetery was very hard to dig that July. The man who was hired to dig the graves for Josefa and Jock had struggled the entire day. He eventually decided to spare himself the extra labor and made one larger grave, which he rolled the bodies of Jock and Josefa into. The two enemies shared a grave in the old Downeyville Cemetery for 19 years. Her ghost was believed to be roused in 1870 when the cemetery was moved so greedy miners could look for gold in the hard dirt. Three feet into the frozen earth, two men quickly dug without speaking a word. A sliver of the moon barely gleamed over the scene. The sound of two shovels clashing and dirt being moved was all that could be heard on that extra dark night in the small graveyard in Downeyville, California. The two men were now standing waist deep in a grave that had been dug for two. A sudden creak and shift startled the men. The rotting wooden coffin beneath them was buckling under their feet. The larger of the two men awkwardly crawled out and laid onto his stomach, his face peering down in the hole. He strained his eyes in the pitch black air to watch his friend pry the coffin open with the handkerchief held over his face. Looking up, he motioned for the oil lamp that sat on the headstone next to the dug up, unmarked grave. Lowering the light near the mostly decomposed remains, the man reached into the coffin. It was only the red wool skirt that allowed the man to retrieve the correct skull from the grave. The skull of Josefa Zehovia. Later, the skull sat on a stand on a piece of red velvet. The mysterious men's club that the grave robbers belonged to stood around it, preparing for the initiation of one of their many secret rituals to begin. 
a secret concoction was poured into her skull, and it was passed along, used as a drinking vessel in the ceremony. It has been reported that the southeast corner of the Jersey Bridge in Downeyville is haunted by Yosefa's spirit, and she calls to the living on foggy nights. She has been seen as a ghostly figure walking along the bridge by locals and visitors alike. A fog shape of a human, or a face surrounded by billowing hair. Some say she is speaking, but you cannot hear the words she is desperately trying to get across. The original Jersey Bridge was destroyed in a flood 10 years after the lynching, and was then rebuilt. The Craycroft Building still stands today. A plaque dedicated to Sehovia's memory is near the bridge where she was hung. It refers to her only as Juanita, even though records of the time gave her full and real name. I guess at the time they just thought Juanita was a better name for a murderous Mexican woman. And if you want to know any more about skulls and secret rituals, well, you'll have to do your own kind of digging. I always think of the Spanish girl standing on the plank of a bridge, tossing her hat to a friend and putting a rope around her neck, folding her hands and facing death with a bravery that shamed us men. Queens of the Minds was written, produced, and narrated by me, Andrea Anderson. Male narration was done by Slim Cessna, and the theme song, in San Francisco Bay is by DBUK. You can find the links to their music, tour dates, and merchandise, as well as links to all of our social media and research links on the Podbean page at queensofthemines.podbean.com. For a little extra local fun, I'm requesting that you submit your family Gold Rush history story on the Podbean page to be read in an upcoming episode. One lucky winner will be chosen each chapter. Until recently, Historians and the public have dismissed conflict history and focus more on history that opposing beliefs could manage to agree on for a mutually beneficial end. Important elements that are necessary for understanding American history have sometimes been downplayed or virtually forgotten. If we do not incorporate racial and ethnic conflict in the presentation of the American experience, we're never going to understand how far we've come or, more importantly, how far we have to go. No matter how painful, we can only move forward by accepting the truth. I'm Andrea Anderson. Thank you for taking the time to listen today. Let's meet again next time on Queens of the Minds.
Swept away. The death ears don't hear me say. 